the sanctuary. Let's show that panorama. He would swoop into the sanctuary. He began darting around underneath the three domes. And he would swoop down and he would steal the priest's voice, rendering him mute so he could not continue with the service. And then, wonder of wonders, the archangel Michael would then step out of the door in real life. And I thought, oh, he's going to go up, he's going to fly, and he's going to intercept this demon and do battle. But that's not what happened in my daydream. Instead, the archangel Michael looked at me, and in thoughts, bade me to come close to him. So I would leave my place in the pew, and I would walk up, and he would hand me his sword. And when thoughts beyond words communicated, it was my job to go up and to fight the demon and to retrieve the priest's voice. And so as I reached out to grasp the hilt of the sword, I knew immediately that I could fly. And I rose up to meet this demon, realizing I had to learn how to sword fight and fly all in the same moment before being skewered by this curved green blade. And so we would fly to and fro like a dog flight fight up in the, up in the, uh, up in the air, people's necks craning up, looking. Even the saints in the Iconostasion will be looking to see if their young warrior was worth his medal. The Holy Trinity was there in the Iconostasion. God the Father sitting in a throne with a long, long white beard and a robe. Next to him, a younger man with a dark beard, shorter, Jesus, his son. And above the two of them was this giant white dove with rays of light coming out of it. They were all looking at me. And so I fought this demon up in the air in the cathedral. And just as I was getting so tired, I didn't think I could lift the sword another moment. The demon took a lunge at me, and I, I, I pivoted on one foot. I parried, and I turned around, and with a two-handed, backhanded slash, I went across his neck and shoulders. All of a sudden, he disappeared in this curling black smoke. He was gone. Immediately, the priest regained his voice, continued on with the liturgy as if nothing had happened, because that's what priests do. <laughs> they just do that liturgy. And I slowly descend back in front of the Archangel Michael, and I kneel down. I hand him the sword. He grasps it, swings it above his head, shouts out a thunderous, Hallelujah! And then steps back into the door of the Iconostasion. I regain my seat. But something's changed. Not only do I see myself with new eyes, but my family, my friends, the congregation, even the cloud of witnesses, the hosts of saints in the front, all look at me with a little smile and a twinkle in their eye and a nod of approval. You know, we tend to think in our post-enlightenment culture that if we imagine something, then it's not real. 
But that's just not true. There's a story about Walt Disney's nephew, Roy, who, after Walt's untimely death, was taking reporters on a tour of the newly constructed Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. Now, Walt had died before construction began. And one of the reporters raised his hand and said, Roy, it's a shame that Walt never saw any of this. And Roy said, oh, Walt did see it. That's why it's here. Walt himself had said, what seems real to the mind can be as important as any material fact. We live by the spirit and the imagination as well as by our senses. Now it's by some kind of fantastic cosmic imagination that God created the universe out of nothing. I mean, think about it for a moment. It was not, and then it was. Where did all that come from? Everything from a subatomic to an atomic to a molecular to a cellular level. Everything from a vegetable to an animal to a plant level. Everything from a subterranean to a underwater to an above ground level, everything from within the atmosphere to the galaxy above, all was imagined in the mind of God before he spoke the universe into existence. Imagination is a really powerful thing. And God has passed that kind of ability on to us as humans because we are created in his image, the Bible tells us. So when Michelangelo the great sculptor would look at a block of marble, he would tell people that he would see a figure already fully formed within the marble, and it was just his job to chip away the imprisoning rock to reveal the figure within. Imaginations are really, really powerful. And even our human imaginations are powerful in the eyes of God. The imagination is not neutral. Now, the word imagination has not received a lot of good press in our English translations of the Bible. In the NIV, the New International Version, there's only two translations using the word imagination, and both of them are negative. In the King James Version of the Bible, there are 14 uses of the word imagination, and only one of them is good. For example, we go to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, talking about the world before the great flood. Genesis 6, 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, the Hebrew word used here is the word lev, L-E-V, transliterated into English. And it means heart. Because it's what they saw in their hearts that was the problem. There's no word for imagination per se in Hebrew, but I think that the thoughts of your hearts are pretty darn close to what we would consider the imagination. 
And in this case, it was an evil imagination that plagued mankind. Such was the case just prior to the great flood. So the Lord wipes out almost the entire human race, except for one small family, because of its twisted imagination. And yet often, we see pictures from that part of Genesis depicted in our nurseries and in our Sunday school rooms for little kids. Got all the animals walking two by two up to the ark, which is over in the distance, except for the unicorns who are over, over the hill doing something naughty. <laughs> there was actually a mural in a church that we rented for a while that had that. I'm just joking around. So, all these animals going two by two. You know, we have mobiles, you know, with animals and the ark and people going around. No one is wife and their sons and their sons' wives. And thinking, wouldn't it be better if we kind of told the rest of the story to the little kids? Like show gi- giant oceanic floods full of debris from houses and barns and dead bodies floating around. Wouldn't that... Make an impression in the minds of young kids how powerful the imagination is in the eyes of God. That could be a good thing. I'm a pastor, and I have seen the terrible and sad and evil results of bent imaginations on the lives of the people that I pastor. Now, what pops in my mind as I say this is sexual abuse. Something that was premeditated in the mind of somebody, even maybe just seconds before the horrible crime was committed. But that has terrible consequences in a person's life. That God is great, and God is good, and God will work with people. I think He weeps with folks who go through that, but it's the evil imaginations of human that causes that kind of destruction in people's lives. So it's not a question of whether we have imaginations. It's about whether we're using them for good or for evil, whether we're using them for building people up or destroying them. What is just possible of capturing our imaginations. In the church, we've kind of got this wrong lately. The Da Vinci Code swept the nation and captured the imagination of many people your age. Oh, really? Could Jesus have been married to Mary Magdalene? Could he have had a son? Is this the Illuminati? Oh, this is amazing. I wonder, they, people were thinking about it. They were talking, what about the Gospel of Thomas? I mean, everybody was thinking about the Da Vinci Code. And how did the church respond? The church responded with facts, with truth. Here are the manuscripts. Here, here's how they are attested. This is why we don't believe this, why we believe this. Blah, da, 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 da. And I'm thinking the church is fighting the wrong battle. It's not the battle of truth. It's the battle of meaning. C.S. Lewis said this. 
Reason is the organ of truth, but imagination is the organ of meaning. Reason is the organ of truth, but imagination is the organ of meaning. My generation was concerned about truth. We wanted evidence that demanded a verdict that Jesus rose from the dead. We wanted a rock-solid case for Christ and a case for faith. We wanted reasons, truth, why Christianity was the way to go, why Jesus was the one and only Savior. But I don't see people asking those kinds of questions in the next couple of generations. They're not asking questions about truth. They're asking questions about meaning. Why am I here? Is there a purpose for my life? How can I have meaning in this world? I'm not opting for truth over meaning. I love both. I'm just trying to say that the imagination plays a very, very important part in figuring out our meaning before a God who loves us in the middle of a world that is going to hell. The church needs to address both meaning and truth. But imagination usually draws the short straw. So here's my first point. The first thing we need is a holy imagination in order to see ourselves. This sermon is a plea for us to begin engaging our holy imaginations. And the reason, number one, we need a holy imagination is in order to see ourselves. If my daydreams did anything for me, they gave me a picture in my young boy's heart of the boy that I might be, the one who was pleasing to God, pleasing to the saints and the congregation, even my own family and church. I was not the best little kid. One of my aunts has told me after I became an adult, Mike, after knowing you as a child, it's amazing how well you've turned out. I was used to being naughty, of doing things wrong. But in my daydreams, I did things right. My imagination showed me a better way. Now, I'm going to repeat what the Scriptures say, that faith is the assurance of things unseen and the evidence of what is hoped for. It's the assurance of things unseen and the evidence of what is hoped for. Now, I'm not saying faith is an imagination, but I will say this. I would not be surprised if a holy imagination is not a stepping stone on the way to faith. One of the exercises of St. Ignatius was to picture himself inside the Bible stories that he would read. So if he was reading a story about Jesus feeding the 5,000 with just a couple of fish and a couple of loaves of bread, he might picture himself as a little boy who's giving Jesus his lunch. How did that boy feel? 
What possessed the boy to do that? What did he think would happen? What did the boy realize after his lunch was multiplied to feed, you know, 10,000 people or more? Or maybe he put himself as one of the disciples who were going, Jesus, what are we going to do? You know, we're far away from any town and there's no place for these people to get something to eat. You know, you got to send them away. You got to just get to let them go get something to eat. And then Jesus rebuking them and saying, well, you give them something to eat. Or maybe he would picture himself as someone in the crowd who had been following Jesus for days and was really, really hungry. How would you feel when the bread and the fish came your way? But it works similarly the other way around too. Sometimes we get ourselves in trouble with an evil imagination. I mean, in a good imagination, we can think, okay, what's it like to be the disciple Thomas who's doubting that Jesus is actually raised from the dead? Because I've doubted that Jesus raised from the dead. What would it be like to touch Jesus' wounds, put my finger inside his spear wound on the side or inside of his, his palms or his feet? What would that be like? But at the same time, I can use my imagination in negative ways, as I've kind of stated before. I remember uh, when I worked at the post office one Christmas season, I was working in a, a mail sorting facility, and uh, there was a guy that I worked with, and he was infatuated with this young, lovely woman who worked next to us. Now, she was from another country, but she was gorgeous. And he was just chatting her up day after day, even though she was married, didn't matter to him because in his mind he pictured them in bed together. And so he was following through on his imagination day after day after day. I don't know what happened, if anything happened with that, but I know that he talked to her about all sorts of things. He was a listening ear from her troubles with her husband or whatever, how they didn't like the post office. On a very kind of much milder level, I remember when I worked at the steel mill, and I'd be working the second shift, getting off at midnight. I'd be coming home. I knew my family would be asleep. So I'm filthy. I thought, okay, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to take off these filthy clothes, shower, get in my PJs, and it'd be great to have a bowl of ice cream and some Twinkies and watch television because that's good for you. And I think the reason that it happened is because I imagined it. That's the power of an imagination. Maybe this is what Jesus was getting at in his Sermon on the Mount. When he would say, you've heard it said how not to act. But then Jesus goes, it goes deeper than that. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say, anyone who looks upon a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Maybe Jesus knew something about the way he created us. 
And it's by a holy imagination that God himself sees you and sees me. Psalm 139 is one of my favorite psalms. It talks about how God has created us. It says, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. You've heard it said that God loves you and has got a wonderful plan for your life. Well, I think that's the kind of verse we get that from. That God looks at us with wonder before we're even born and says, Oh, when this kid's born, she's going to do some amazing things. He's going to really love people in my name. It's going to be awesome. We kind of get that when we have baptisms or dedications of little kids, right? We go to these dedications or baptisms and we think, Oh, what potential there is for this child. I wonder what's going to happen. Maybe she'll be president. Maybe he'll discover a cure for cancer. Why don't we look at people when they're in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s with the same kind of wonder? It's because we have disengaged our holy imagination. But God looks at us that way. I mean, it doesn't matter where you are in your race of life, whether you're on the first, second, third, or fourth lap, God's got a plan for you, and it's exciting. And it's wonderful. And He's really, really stoked about it. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is uh, the story about Gideon, the great judge in ancient Israel who is called to be a mighty fighter and to throw off the yoke of oppression. Our first introduction to Gideon is him hiding in a wine press. I mean, he's hiding like in a farm. He's found the, wine, the room where the wine press is. And then he not only just goes in that room, he goes into the wine press itself because Israel's enemies are close by. And the angel of the Lord, which many take to be the pre-incarnate Jesus, shows up, and this is how he greets him. Hail, mighty warrior. Now, if that's not a holy imagination, I don't know what is. So we need a holy imagination in order to see ourselves as we truly are. My second point is that we are to see one another by means of a holy imagination. 2 Corinthians 5.16 from the New International Version says this, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Perhaps the single best gift we can give to each other is to employ a holy imagination as we interact with each other, as we eat with each other, as we talk with each other before and after church or at school or at work or on the street. It doesn't matter. It is not just good for them. It's good for us as well. In his great sermon, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis says this, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations. These are mortal. And their life to ours 
is as the life of a gnat, but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Earlier in that sermon, he prefaces that with this. He says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person that you meet may one day be a creature now, which, if you saw it in heaven, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in nightmares. People are the most important things we deal with, day in, day out. They're more important than our to-do lists. Jesus was known to put people at the head of his priorities. It didn't matter if he was going on his way to heal the daughter of a very prominent man in the synagogue who lay dying. If a woman with no name, who had been sick for 12 years, with a very embarrassing condition, could just touch the hem of his garment, she would be healed. And Jesus would want to know her name because he felt she was just as important as this very important man's daughter. The religious culture would not have recognized this woman's glory, but Jesus would. And we need to recognize the glory of each other as we go through life. I don't think there's any time that we have our imaginations running as low as when we just label people. We think to ourselves glibly, oh, she's the smart one. Or, he's the nerd. Or, she's the pretty one. Or, she's the geek that I want to sit next to in math class. Or, he's the athletic one who's not so bright. Or, she's the spiritual one, and I really don't want to get into a long, drawn-out discussion with her. We so limit other people when we do this to them. But it's also said we limit what they might become to us. And what might happen in our relationship. You hear this all the time in the sports world. I was listening, and I don't often listen to sports radio, but uh, I wanted to hear the traffic. So I put on KOA, and they were interviewing an NFL wide receiver from Denver who was being honored uh, as an inductee into the Hall of Fame. And you came to find out, as you listened to this guy's story, that nobody in his family ever made it out of the ghetto. That they didn't make it out of high school, but he had gone to college, he had excelled as an athlete, and was now, you know, being inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame after a very lucrative and successful career. And so the interviewers asked him, so to what do you attribute this honor in your life? And he said... It was a teacher in grade school 
It was a neighbor. It was a coach who saw something in me that I didn't see in myself, nor did my family see in me, but they gave me hope that I might actually amount to something someday. It was by use of a holy imagination that these people had given him the ability to see himself as something more than what he was destined. Aren't our personal heroes... I mean, think about this for a minute. Aren't your personal heroes people in your life who have seen more in you than you saw in yourself? Who believed more about you than anybody else around you believed about you? We need to see each other by means of a holy imagination. My last point is that we need to see Jesus by means of the same holy imagination. We need a healthy dose of holy imagination in order to see Jesus more clearly. Now, when I talk to certain Christians about Jesus, there is no sparkle in their eyes. Their voices are kind of flat and monotone. They might say, without a whole lot of inflection, well, he died for my sins. This is especially true of people I noticed who have grown up in the church as opposed to people who have come to faith later on. They didn't come from a Christian background. Jesus kind of exploded into their lives. We in the church need a healthy dose of holy imagination in order to see Jesus more clearly. 2 Corinthians 5.16 goes on to say this. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. So here's the problem. You can have all the stained glass, all the marble mosaics, all the paintings, all the smells and bells that you want in a church. And if a young person does not employ a holy imagination to connect to those spiritual realities, they can be dead as a doornail in the building that houses the church. I used to do student teaching, and I'm sorry, substitute teaching. And for a while, I substituted in a Catholic school. And I wasn't a regular teacher, so, you know, they give you a lesson. Sometimes you get done early, and I thought, well, let's have some fun with these kids. You can't do this in a public school, but you certainly could do it in a parochial school. I turned behind me and looked above the whiteboard and I saw this crucifix with Jesus hanging in there all bloody. And I thought, I'm going to ask these guys a question. So I decided to ask them the old evangelical question. I said, hey, if you died tonight and you stood before the pearly gates and Jesus was there and he said to you, why should I allow you into my heaven? Or maybe it's St. Peter because he's at the gate. If you're Catholic, I don't care. 
But he said to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would your response be? And to my surprise, the answers I got were the kind of answers I would get from just about anybody I talked to who wasn't even from a church background. Well, I hope in my life I've done more good things than bad, and the scales are tipped in my direction so that he would let me in. Or, you know, Jesus is a really nice guy. He gives people second chances. And I would hope that maybe based on the fact that he gives people second chances that I could somehow make it through the door. I mean, I was appalled. I turned and pointed to the crucifix and I said, Okay, kids, then what is that all about? And then, as they say in England, the penny dropped. Or in America, the light bulb came on. They go, oh, yeah, Jesus dying for our sins. Right, that's why I'm going, right. (laughs) Now, the gulf between what they knew and what they appropriated in their life had to be spanned by a holy imagination. When we came up with the name for this church, you all know I wasn't a fan. I thought, what am I going to do if they call this thing scum of the earth? As I say over and over again, it's the best decision I never made to allow them to call this place scum of the earth. And I'll tell you why. One of the reasons it's a great name is because it will not let your imagination alone. Scum of the Earth is a church name that grabs out, holds people by the neck, and shakes them until they have an answer. Like, Scum of the Earth? Oh my, why would you ever call yourselves that? You know God doesn't see you that way. Or, Scum of the Earth? Hey! I could go to a church with that kind of name. Scum of the Earth is a name that forces people to have a holy imagination. It's one of the reasons I love it. We like to call ourselves a church for the left out and the right brained. With the uh, end of the matter, being a congregation that's very much full of all sorts of writers and poets and musicians and artists and actors. But you don't have to be any of those kinds of things to employ a holy imagination because God has created all of us. And we need people who like spreadsheets and numbers. Let me tell you a couple ways God has employed a holy imagination. Uh, There's this church uh, that I was actually a member of just before Scum of the Earth came to be at Celebration Community Church. And uh, Celebration Community Church knew that I was meeting with this kind of ragtag group of young people and thinking about maybe planning a church. And they came to me and they said, Mike, we know how hard it is to plan a church. We just got done doing it a year and a half ago. So this is what we decided to do. We're going to give you personally $1,000 a month 
for the first 12 months if you want to help start this church. And I'm thinking, what? Are you kidding me? I mean, it is a holy imagination that allows you to take a thousand dollars of God's money every month and give it to somebody like me. We need a holy imagination that's come of your church just to remember that the future may not suck. When I meet people who are in the throes of marital difficulty, one of the things I have to do is remind them that God is still on the throne, that He still loves them, He still loves their spouses. And that there's hope. God has not given you the ability to tell the future. Because one of the things I always hear is, if I stay with this person, my life is going to suck, and I'll tell you how. And I'm thinking, employ a holy imagination just for a few months. Work this thing out. If you don't have an imagination that allows you to see yourself living a life that's clean and sober, you will never be able to get there. You will get there because you see it. If you refuse to see it, you will never get there. If you can't see yourself on your own, making enough money to pay the rent and to have a life, you will never, ever get there. God wants you to employ a holy imagination in regards to your relationship with Him that that kind of life is possible for you. That God is that good, that He's that sovereign, that He's that big, that He's that strong, that He likes you that much. You need to employ a holy imagination so that you know that God is not like the dad you never had or the men who abused you or the boys who discounted you when you were in high school, or the women who wouldn't give you the time of day. You need a holy imagination so that when God doesn't answer your prayer the way you want it answered, you don't go off the deep end and say, screw you, God. Could there possibly be some good in God saying no to your prayer or saying wait to your prayer? You're not going to get there if you don't employ a holy imagination. It's been said by many people that we have the coolest restrooms in Christendom. I mean, they're works of art. You go into this bathroom over here and it's like being in a fantastic garden. 
There's a path. There's a temple with a reflecting pool. There's all sorts of animals. A carousel horse come to life, a tree frog, a parrot, a couple ibises, dragonflies, butterflies. I'm thinking, if you're a little kid at Scum of the Earth, that bathroom has the makings of a holy imagination. Or you come around this way and you see this fantastic kind of graffiti art in this men's room. You're wondering, what are those things on the wall? Why is there lightning and why is there a cloud and why is there water? And you just start to think, like, what is going on here? It sparks an imagination. Whether you're five or whether you're 50. Or you go into the women's room and you see all those pennies and those toilet seats that are hanging up there and you're going, hmm, this is interesting. I wonder why she did that. I wonder why she did this. What is that one with all the broken pieces up there? What's that about? If you stare at it long enough, you get it. It's the makings of a holy imagination. You come in the sanctuary, and you're looking over there, you're going, why is Jesus blue? Why is John the Baptist red? What's that about, Mommy? Why are they wearing diapers? Or next to it, Jesus' hands are glowing and his head is on fire. Is he praying? What's happening? I mean, light bulbs over here. That's kind of obvious. Stained glass windows. Light playing on pews. Mosaics. Who made those mosaics? Why would they make those mosaics? What do those mosaics mean? I mean, all around me, I'm realizing in an art gallery that changes almost every month how... This place is like the Greek Orthodox Church for Denver, Colorado in the new millennium. I'm wondering how many kids with ADD, and you know your kids are going to have ADD. How many kids are going to grow up going, hmm, I'm going to daydream about that for a while because Mike Sayers is boring. Honestly. Let's remember that we are created by a Savior who gave us the ability to imagine. To imagine being one with Him. To imagine being one with each other. To imagine being one and integrated within ourselves. As we go to take communion in just a couple of moments, I want you to think about what we're doing. It's like the ultimate object lesson. Jesus is asking us to employ our holy imaginations every time we take some of the bread and break it off and dip it into the cup. Can you imagine that this is His body? Can you imagine that this is His blood? Can you imagine that you're bringing it into your body? What's it going to do once it gets in your body? Well, it's going to be digested. And then it's going to go as nutrients into every cell in my body. And so, Lord Jesus, I'll tell you what, this time for this communion, as your 
nutrition goes into my body. Let every cell of mine praise you with this nutrition. Let me do your will. Let my feet go where you want them to go. Let my hands do what you want me to do. Let my tongue say the things you want me to say. Let my mind think the things you want me to think. Employ your holy imaginations that communion just isn't this dry, rote piece of liturgy, but it's something that goes in and changes you from the cellular level up. Please pray with me. Holy Father, ever-living Christ, comforting Spirit, be with us today. Invade our consciousness. Baptize our imaginations so they may be holy unto you. In the way we see you, in the way we see each other, in the way we see ourselves. In Christ's name, amen.